Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we talk about two of the most fascinating moons in our solar system. Our solar system has many fascinating moons, whether it be around Jupiter or Saturn. Even our own one has its own interests, but we're going to be focusing on the strange chemistry of these different moons and what they may tell us about the potential for life on other planets, and even just strange geological chemistry processes. Water is incredibly important for us and for life on Earth, whether it be creating the food that we eat, keeping the ecosystem, the animals, the plants that we survive off alive. Water has always been essential for life as we know it here on Earth. And when we look here on Earth, we can find in water life in a lot of strange forms, forms we don't even expect. Now, this is why scientists are always looking on other planets for sources of water. With the same logic that if on Earth water is so important for life, well, maybe on other planets it will be as well. But other planets aren't the only place that potentially have water. Okay, there may be water, there definitely was water on Mars at one point in time, and there might be some in some form there right now. But there are other objects in our solar system that contain a lot of water, and are also pretty big in size. In fact, the ninth largest object in our solar system is on a moon of Jupiter, Ganymede. And Ganymede, despite being so large and being relatively close to Jupiter, is one of the more interesting of the Jovian moons, mostly because, as we've known about since the 1970s, we suspect it has some pretty strange geology. Now we know it has a magnetic field and a core. This is a good sign because it suggests that the planet's surface and geology is active. But what's more amazing is that it may have a thick layer of icy oceans. And scientists all the way back from NASA in the 1970s were theorizing that perhaps there was two layers of ice, one on the surface and one beneath a liquid ocean on top of the rocky mantle, then then with further missions like the Galileo mission, they found indications of a subsurface ocean. Now, you can look in more detail all the way back in 2014, trying to do modeling of the thermodynamics of water and salt and rock. And it's possible that you could even end up with layers of ocean separated by different types or phases of ice with the lowest liquid layer right down close to the Rocky Mantle. Now, this is pretty amazing because we're talking like depths down to 800 kilometers to get to the bottom of that rocky sea floor, and you get a pretty impressive temperature gradient if that's the case. Now, some more ingenious methods for studying water on Ganymede have been used as well. In 2015, researchers used data measured by the Hubble Space Telescope to study the aurora, and they did this to look for clues of a subsurface ocean. Because by studying the aurora, well, if it's affected by different things that change its magnetic field, like, say, I don't know, a large saltwater ocean, well, that would adjust and change Ganymede's magnetic field. If you do that, well, then you'd impact the aurora of the planet. Now, based on this estimate, it's possible that Ganymede, in some form or another, contains more water ocean than we have here on Earth. Now, from a pure statistical perspective, and if it has enough variations of temperature and can keep warm and has a magnetic field, it may be possible that there's life on Ganymede in some form.
Now, researchers from KTH University in Stockholm, Sweden, have been investigating this fascinating mood of Jupiter, Ganymede, to look for more evidence, more deeper understanding of the water that we can see there. It was all part of this quest for potential places where life could exist across our solar system. Now, what they used for this study was a range of images from the venerable workhorse of telescopes, the Hubble Space Telescope, and of course, on the Hubble Space Telescope, a specific instrument, the Cosmic Origin Spectrograph. Now, they used images from that and the Space Telescope Imaging Spectroscopy System dating in a huge date range, basically from 98 through to 2010. And this is a large amount of data. Now, what they were using here is trying to piece together an area of science that has been going backwards and forwards for a few years. Now, way back in 98, when Hubble Space Telescope's STIS system took the first ultraviolet images of Ganymede, they could see these beautiful, colourful ribbons of electrified gas called auroral bands. Now, that was important because, as we spoke about before, that gave the indication that Ganymede has a magnetic field, weak but present. Now, the similarities in the use of observations were explained by, at the time, a presence of something called molecular oxygen, O2. The problem is, these observed features didn't quite match with what you'd have if the atmosphere was actually pure O2, as you would call it. What they said was, well, maybe there's some discrepancy due to some higher concentrations of atomic oxygen, O, rather than molecular oxygen, O2. The variations in the forms of these different presentations of oxygen would lead to slightly different observed patterns in the ultraviolet images. Now, that was all well and good, and was the only way we had of studying Ganymede in detail back in 98. And unfortunately, we had missions to Jupiter since then. Of course, the Galileo mission and the Juno mission. Now, KTH University, the direction of Lorenz Roff, a leading researcher there and contributor on this paper, they studied and supported a lot of data collected by NASA's Juno mission all the way back in 2018. Now, while they were doing that, they were trying to dive into this comparative amount of atomic oxygen found by Hubble. And they needed to go through all these images and spectroscopy data way back all the way to 98 to compare it to what they were looking at in 2018. A full 20 years of data. The thing is, 20 years of data, a lot of has changed in that time. When they looked through the data, the original interpretations of the data from 98 suggested something very different to what they saw now. There was hardly any atomic oxygen to be found in Ganymede's atmosphere. Now, that's a problem, because the theory from 98 relied on the presence of atomic oxygen, just plain old O. And if you look at the new data, there really wasn't much there, combining that with the data over a 20 year period from the instruments. Now, that caused some concern. There had to be something else that would explain the differences in Aurora. So it was back to those ultraviolet images the team turned. Now the, one of the challenges with studying ultraviolet images is when you have a high contrasting amount of temperature. And Ganymede's surface temperature varies 
incredibly during the day. And around noon near the equator, it might actually become warm enough. Ice surface releases, or to be more specific, sublimates some small amounts of water molecules. Now, this is interesting because if Ganymede warms up just for a small period of time, just enough to melt a little bit of the ice or sublimate some of that ice, some things will happen. Now, when they looked for these hotter areas of the moon where they're on the surface of Ganymede, there might have been some of this melting, some of this sublimation. If you look at where that would be most likely to occur, these regions, which would be the warmest, these actually line up with the change in the UV images that they're seeing. Now, this is interesting. You pretty much have two things occurring in the same area. The variation in UV that's being observed from the spectroscopy, and of course, the actual release of some water, liquid water. So the results in the spectroscopy that they were seeing that was suggesting some sort of water vapor is actually being caused by the charged particles that are eroding the surface of the ice, causing the sublimation and the release of some various forms of oxygen. But it does mean, quite importantly, that these researchers have discovered water vapor on Ganymede's surface. And just in time, in fact, because European Space Agency has an upcoming mission called JUICE. No, they're not going to make juice out of the water on the Jovian moons, but they are going to study all of Jupiter's icy moons and explore them. Juicy Jupiter's icy moons explorer, JUICE. And JUICE is a pretty big mission for the European Space Agency. It's part of their 2015 to 2025 Cosmic Vision Program. Get launched in 2022 and arrive at Jupiter in 2029. So still a long way away, but the mission itself is almost ready to launch. Now, this program will spend around three years making detailed observation of Jupiter, and in particular, its three largest moons. Ganymede is, of course, amongst them. Because what these researchers are hoping to find, now that we've shown that water vapor can exist on the surface of Ganymede, it's possible that there are also some other interesting places in the Jovian system with some very unusual behaviors. Studying these icy moons and perhaps the presence of liquid water in these places as well could lead us to discovering locations that may have the potential for developing life. Now, by studying 20 plus years of data from the Hubble Space Telescope, scientists can form plans, test data, check hypotheses, and make the best plans for future missions to go investigate. That's what's happening right now with the Juno mission, which was scoped and planned based on the Galileo mission, which was scoped and planned based on telescopic data from things like Hubble. That's how space programs work, a building up of information. And that's exactly what's happened in this particular paper, published in the journal Nature Astronomy. Lead author, Lawrence Roff, and a large list of collaborators, which helps scientists understand the mysterious results of oxygen found in the data from Ganymede's moon, and how water vapor may be forming on the moon's surface, turning from solid to gas. And that helps us find potential places where life may exist in our solar system. Great work from KTH University, Stockholm, Sweden, published in the journal Nature Astronomy.
Now, there's not just Ganymede that holds itself out there as an object in our solar system of intense fascination for all kinds of scientists. Of course, there's Io with its incredibly strange push and pull relationship with Jupiter and fascinating geology. But when you turn to Saturn's moon, Enceladus poses the greatest potential of something incredibly interesting and incredibly strange because we know it has an icy shell and we're pretty sure there's some strange oceans underneath that icy shell surface. We know this because there's these giant water plumes erupting from Enceladus, which are fascinating, not just for scientists trying to get details on what is actually happening there, but for the public and for people like myself, it's amazing to think about. These giant geysers erupting into the atmosphere. So much so that these flumes of ice and material can actually be flown through. Cassini did it. It flew through one of these plumes of Enceladus to try and actually gather information to understand its chemical makeup. Now, when Cassini did this, it discovered a pretty high concentration of certain molecules. Now, we find on Earth these molecules located around the depths of Earth's oceans, specifically at the hydrothermal vents. These types of chemicals that were molecules that were discovered include dihydrogen, methane, carbon dioxide. Now, the amount of methane found in these plumes was what surprised chemists because really this is particularly strange. What could have produced this methane? Now, we ask this question because here on Earth, plenty of things produce methane as a byproduct of some kind of biological reaction. Because on Earth, we have microbes that eat dihydrogen and produce methane, amongst many other things, cows included. Now, methane that was being detected in these plumes from Enceladus and picked up on as Cassini flew through had to have come from somewhere. And perhaps Earth-like microbes around a geothermal vent on Enceladus is a potential explanation. And that's what researchers like Regis Ferrier, an associate professor at the University of Arizona Department of Ecology and Evolution of Biology, was trying to dive into. Now, working together with University of Arizona researchers and researchers from the Paris Science and Letters University, they published a paper in the journal Nature Astronomy. Authors include Anthony Affolde, Francois Guyot, Boris Satoré, Regis Ferrier, Stephanie Mazavet. And they were diving into all of this data from Cassini and from other missions to try and figure out what is going on with these plumes. How these chemicals found in them could relate to potential sources of life. Now, they looked at Enceladus plume composition and as a result of several chemical and physical processes that could probably be taking place in the moon's interior. Now, if you had a hydrothermal vent that could produce dihydrogen, that would make sense based on the data they saw. Now, if there was a hydrothermal vent there, could that hydrothermal vent produce enough, let's say, food, for want of a better word, that could sustain a kind of microbe population, that, like we see here on Earth, that could produce all of these methogens? So they built a model of population dynamics for these fictional and salidian microbes that were living there. 
Now, this would have to match up with the thermal and energetic niche that we sort of see here on Earth, but that would make sense for the depths of an icy ocean far on a moon of Saturn. And when they had this model, they ran it through with a whole bunch of different chemical conditions, varying things like the dihydrogen concentration in the hydrothermal fluid, varying temperature, which one would provide a suitable environment for the microbes to grow, and would that actually enable the population to thrive enough to create the concentrations of dihydrogen and methane that would be seen in the plume. Now, all they were doing really is building a model and seeing if they could come up with a model that would potentially explain the results that they found from the Cassini mission. And the end result of this study was not only could they evaluate Cassini's data, but they could see that they could make qualitative predictions about what observations to expect in the future. And if it's possible for methanogenesis to actually occur at Enceladus's sea floor. Now, even the highest possible estimate of abiotic methane production, or basically methane production without any aid of, of biological basis, based on everything we know about hydrothermal chemistry, that would not be enough to explain the high volumes of methane seen inside these plutes. But as soon as you add biological methanogenesis to the mix, that is basically methane produced from a biological source, then with a huge range of conditions, you could easily produce enough methane to match Cassini's observation. In short, without some sort of biological basis for methane production, it would be nearly impossible to produce the amount of methane seen in these plumes. But even if you had a small amount of biological production, that would explain a lot about the strange chemical makeup of these plumes. Now, of course, this doesn't mean aliens underneath the surface of the ice. There could be plenty of reasons, but it means that the life hypothesis, often thought to be highly improbable, isn't so improbable as, as it would seem, at least from this set of data. Now, the methane could come from the chemical breakdown of basically primordial organic matter. That doesn't necessarily require sophisticated life, but some form of basically a biological process that is producing methane. That could certainly happen, and it would be especially possible if Enceladus was formed through an accretion of organic-rich material from, say, comets or some other source. Now, that doesn't mean life, but it does mean organic, from a chemical perspective, production of methane. And that is very interesting. Now, we won't know until we actually get much more data on Enceladus's moons and get more information about what's going on underneath there. Of course, this awaits as a potential option for a future mission. Until then, we have to study the data that we have available. And based on this paper published in the journal Nature Astronomy, with lead author Anthony Afolder and a lot of contributing authors from University of Arizona and Paris Science and Letters University, there's certainly many explanations for the production of these strange plumes that we see on Enceladus, but most of them require something special. That is, a biological production of methane to help explain that. And if it's possible for a hydrothermal vent to produce a biological production of methane, it may mean that it's possible for some form of life to be forming around these hydrothermal vents. Now, of course, we won't know until we get more data, but this is a good reason to go and investigate in more detail. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. Solving the mysteries of the strange chemical and potential for life on other moons in our solar system, including Enceladus and Ganymede.
Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.